Thanks for listening to the podcast of First Alliance Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. For more information about our church or to watch a video recording of today's message, visit us online at facws.org. encourage you to open to Luke chapter 9. What if the reason why we often experience frustration in our lives is because we hand our souls over to God, but then think that we get to then define the outcomes of our lives. In other words, we say, yes, Lord, I'm yours. Yes, Lord, thank you for healing me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for giving me your Holy Spirit. But when it comes to what happens next, we go down a path that we decide and we ask God to join us along the way. What has happened up to this point is in Luke chapter 8, I hope you will recall, Luke has unveiled in the life of Christ a rising, a showing off of all of the extent of his glorious power and his attributes and his character. As he's controlled the weather, as he's overwhelmed the Old Testament sense of uncleanness by touching a dead body in order to resurrect a dead person. He's shown himself to be God. At the top of the mountain, he unveiled himself, standing between Moses and Elijah, greater than both the law and the prophets. Here he is, the Son of God himself, made flesh. There's an interesting point that I didn't highlight to you there, which is that until the Middle Ages, almost every interpreter of that passage interpreted it thus, that what was changed was not Jesus, but rather the ability of those that were with him to see him for who he really was. In other words, the transfiguration, as we think of it, is Jesus being transfigured, but instead it was a change in the hearts and the eyes of those that were with Jesus to be able to see him in his glory. And then they come down off the mountain. And what happens through the rest of Luke chapter 9 is a series of challenges to faith. Tensions arise. Now, previously, most of what we've gotten in the book of Luke has been Jesus teaching, Jesus healing, Jesus doing with not that much opposition. Jesus would go into a particular scenario and unveil his glory and unveil his glorious knowledge and people would receive it. But here we're going to see tension, conflict. A series of tensions that I believe actually exist in the lives of every believer at one point or another. And so I encourage you to look at verse 37 of Luke 9. The next day, they came down from the mountain. They literally had a mountaintop experience. You ever been on a religious retreat or a time of prayer or a time of aloneness when you were in the Word or you were praying or you felt the Lord really speak to you? You had a dream and the Lord really gave you a new revelation. And that's the mountaintop experience. And frequently when we come down, there's the letdown, so to speak. Moses has a mountaintop experience and comes down to find the people worshiping a golden calf. 
Well, here we have a mountaintop experience where the disciples, just a handful of them, and Jesus have a marvelous moment and then a, probably a, a, a night without sleep and the very next day, tired, bedraggled, they come down the mountain and a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg of you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And, and behold, a spirit seizes him and cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast him out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. You go, well, that's kind of mean there, Jesus. The guy just wants his kid to be healed of a demon. Why would Jesus all of a sudden say, oh, faithless and twisted generation? Jesus' intended audience in saying that was not the man. But go to the beginning of the passage. What does it say? A great crowd met him. Here, Jesus had been teaching and healing and sent out his disciples to do miracles and all this sorts of stuff for months and months and months. And nevertheless, coming down the mountain, having revealed his glory, the first thing that he finds is that not a soul of the great crowd that followed him had the wherewithal or the ability or the faith to see this demon be cast out in the great crowd. Mark which is actually the shortest gospel, gives us in this passage the most detail. So much detail that I won't read it now, but I encourage you later to read Mark 9 and compare how tight and short the narrative is in Luke 9 versus Mark 9, where there's uh, two dozen verses which handle this section of Scripture. But Mark shows us that within this crowd were scribes and Pharisees and followers of the law who were arguing with the disciples. Early interpreters would, would read that as uh, Jesus comes down to find his disciples and his scribes arguing over the law and the scribes basically mocking the Pharisees for their inability, uh, mocking the disciples for their inability to cast out a demon. So here Jesus is gloriously revealed on the mountaintop and comes down to find the people that ought to claim him as king, the Jewish leaders, and the people who do say that he is the Messiah, his own disciples, just throwing snowballs at each other. And meanwhile, this boy is suffering, and this father is heartbroken, and there's no power of God being evidenced in any of it. None. So when Jesus rebukes, he's not rebuking the Father. Don't read into this his cruel, callous response to the Father because it's not. It's the crowd. What is wrong with you people? The word faithless, apistos, without faith, literally means like has no ability to believe in the glory of God whatsoever. Pistis, that word faith is the central response of the believing person to God. Without faith, Paul would say, you have nothing. Peter would talk about works and say faith without works is dead, but so too are works without faith. They're useless. Faith is the central heartbeat of anybody who claims Jesus or to follow Jesus. Jesus.
faithless, twisted. How long will I put up with you? Many of our lives, the problem that we encounter is not a lack of good intention, but a lack of simple intention. And I mentioned to you in a sermon about six months ago, and I bring it up to you again. Thomas Merton, who, who was a, a monk in the United States, would write about the difference between right intentions and simple intention. The disciples no doubt had right intentions. One might even argue that the scribes would have right intentions from time to time. They were zealous for the word. They wanted to protect the word of God and make sure that every letter, every jot and tittle, everything was followed closely and, and passed down from generation to generation. And the disciples, they were all about Jesus. They were ready to die for Jesus, pick up the sword for Jesus, follow Jesus, leave everything for Jesus. The challenge is, is that both of them both groups felt like they had the right to define God's will instead of asking God what he wanted in the first place. The greatest challenge to your faith is that you set up your own obstacles to your faith called your goals, your expectations, your outcomes, whatever it is that you think a good faith ought to look like in the end. You have good intentions. And even the common layperson can tell you that the good is most often the enemy of the best. Or in this case, good intentions are most often the enemy of a simple intention. And what is a simple intention? To desire God. To desire the Lord Jesus. When he came down off the mountain, what should have resulted was worship. Instead, there's conflict and an appalling lack of the power of God manifested in the lives of the disciples. Because they had decided their intentions, what they were going to do, what ministry ought to look like, what their lives ought to be shaped like and outcomes that they desired. This is going to be a perpetual conflict in the life of Jesus up until he comes back from the dead. The disciples would say, well, shouldn't we be doing this? Or I don't understand that. They would get conflicted. Even when Jesus is arrested, one of them would draw a sword and cut off one of the soldier's ears. Because they knew right. They were going to do what was right. The Pharisees, of course, put Jesus on the cross with the best of intentions. Did you ever think about the fact that until the very moment that they met God in heaven, the Pharisees would have gone to the grave thinking that they were serving God when they nailed Jesus to the cross. You ever think about that? They, they weren't just doing it because they were greedy or power hungry. There were elements of that. But because they lacked faith but kept the intentions of righteousness. They had no relationship with God. But they thought they knew what it meant to serve God. There's nothing more dangerous in this world than somebody who defines for God what, what it is that God wants and then pursues it with all the fervor of a passionate fanatic. Happens all the time. Those men that drove the planes 
9-11 into the World Trade Center thought that they were serving God. What God wants is for us to have faith and love in him first and above all. And from that flows his intentions for for your life, which he reveals at his pace. I love to-do lists. Is anybody else else here a to-do list person? Those of you that are watching this at 2 o'clock, I know you're not. It's okay. (laughs) But those of you that are here and online right now, you might be a to-do list person. I'm a to-do list person. I have to sit down and and on my Gmail, I use the the Google to-do list, Google list, and I keep all my lists. And then I might have sub lists and sticky notes and all the things. And I got to check those things off each day. I've gotten really good at moving them to the next day. So they're still technically on a list. So it's not like I've violated the list. I just expanded the list. Uh, when, when my wife and I were dating, there was one point at which she saw my to-do list and it had written on there, uh, uh, time with Olivia. And she's like, I don't belong on a list. I'm better than that. You ought to love me and be thinking of me. And now we've been married, what, 16 years? And she's like, uh, you need to put that on the list. <laughs> you need to make sure that... You take me on a date or, you know, you need to go ahead and put that on there. We approach religion like that. Now, don't we? You can't list God. You can list your quiet time. You can list your prayer times. But without the faith and love for God above all else, you find ways to excuse not following the list that you yourself have created in order to be with God. I've been reading in Kings, which is a depressing read. When you go back to 2 Kings and you read about the judgments that God would levy against his own people as a result of their failures and about the punishment that he would lash on them because of the way that they walked away from God. What is revealed is not just that they did bad stuff or failed to follow the checklist, but what you find out is that God punishes his people above all because of a lack of faith, because of a lack of faith. If you look in chapter 17, verse 7, all of this occurred, talking about the disruption and captivity of the northern kingdom, because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. Everything else follows from that. They walked in the customs of the nations the Lord had driven out. And they secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places, that is, places for idols where they could worship, and pillars and asherim, which were these places where they would do these worshipful moments for all their gods and false gods. And they made offerings on the high places, on the places of false worship, which provoked the Lord to anger. Verse 8. 
The fundamental root of all sin is idolatry. The fundamental root of the sin of the crowds and of the the scribes and the reason why the disciples could not cast out this demon, which was a really bad one. This boy was suffering from epileptic seizures and shocks and would even throw himself in the fire. The demon hated that boy so. The reason why the disciples failed is because they wanted to do it for them. Because they had made the list of what following God ought to look like. Your list that you make in the best of your own intentions, if not from God himself, motivated by faith and love from him, your list is an idol. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Paul would encounter this same problem over and over and over again in the early church. And he would have to remind the early church that if you're going to demonstrate the power of God, it must be for the purposes of God or else God is going to inevitably remove that power and punish instead of empowering. And so he would write to the Corinthian church, we have this treasure, God's work in jars of clay, earthen vessels, brittle and frail, easy to break. To show that this power belongs to God and not to us. The moment we claim God's power for our intentions, the moment we make a list and then tell God to fulfill it, is the moment that dissatisfaction and a lack of power will enter most strongly into our lives and begin to erode our faith or perhaps reveal our lack of faith in the first place. But when Jesus, God himself, shows up and in alignment with his own will, casts out this demon, it is immediate. The boy is convulsing on the ground. The demon was the one convulsing him. And Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit, heals the boy and gives him back to his father. And what results is worship. It says, and all were astonished. At the majesty of God. All were astonished at the majesty of God. How do we test whether or not our outcomes or lists, things that we think that we ought to do for God, are in fact from God and for God? You begin at the end. You begin by asking the question, whatever the outcome of this thing that I'm about to do, will it result in worship for God or worship for me? Will it result in me having personal professional gain, having an easier life or a better life, or will it result in worship for God? Regardless of the outcome. The action itself, my attempt, even in failure, will it result in people saying, yes, Lord, amen, Jesus is worthy of worship. I I, I think that's why, you know, when you consider this presidential election time, we're getting so tied up in knots. It's because we continue to think 
that we are going to determine the outcome of what happens in the life of this nation with our one vote. When that's God's problem. Vote. Debate your vote. Argue your vote. But can you argue your vote in such a way that gives glory to Jesus Christ? Or are you so preoccupied with the outcome that you're convinced has to happen, no matter what person you're talking about, that if it doesn't come out your way, you're willing to go to the nth degree of anger in order to get what you want? Knowing full well that gives no glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. The world is watching and what matters most to the world is not just what we want. Because that's explainable. I really want this person to win for this reason. But how we go about the process of pursuing whatever we're convinced is the righteous outcome. How? That's what they see. And I don't come to you as a perfect person on this one. I'm a little better in 2020 than I was in 2016. Thankfully, back in 2008, I didn't know any of you. Because, you know, 20, 2008, 2012, you know, he got heated and me, me and some family would get heated and things, would, you know. But I learned, yes, I have what I desire. You ought to have what you desire, too. I hope you vote. This church is faithfully going to be a voting site on November 3rd. Because we love our country and we want the best for it. We're actually going to have to use the sanctuary because with the COVID social distancing and, and uh, uh, with the airflow that we can create in here and uh, with the traffic patterns, and they think they're going to need more machines. And so we're going to be in here and open the walls up. Uh, not the walls. Don't worry, trustees. Open the doors up. Not the walls. That's a bit outside of our budget at this point. But open the doors up and invite people in so that they can express their preference. And my hope is that they will see the glory of Jesus and how we welcome them, how we love them, how we've given this space, because that's what I want for them is to love Jesus above all. They could come in here and vote for every single wrong person, but if they walk out those doors thinking, wow, this church really loves the Lord, we won. The kingdom won. Every person you hate on the evening of November 3rd could, could win in a landslide. But if one soul walks out of here thinking Jesus is great, who never thought that before, the kingdom won. And that's the thing. That's where we are today. That's what we have to pause and consider. Not are my outcomes what I think God should have them be, but is my number one objective the glory and the praise and the love of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who indwells all of us. And from that trickles out the to-do list and they change and they get shifted and there's going to be times when you just have a blank piece of paper with nothing on it and you have no idea what the day holds for you, but as long as your intention is the glory of God and Jesus Christ, you've won. You've had a good day. You started out with a good day. So I encourage you in this. 
My first action in the day is a deeply sinful one that I'm working on, which is to just turn over and flip up the phone and kind of blearily look and go, ugh. Ugh. What if we rose and the first thought in our day is, Lord Jesus, I love you. Lay before me the day that you want me to have. There's going to be several more challenges that we're going to see in the weeks ahead. And so I encourage you to read through the rest of this chapter 9. I might combine some of the challenges into one sermon, or I might, as I did today, kind of get carried away in each of the challenges. But I'll give you a spoiler for each one. The ultimate outcome to each of the challenges is a question. Is the love of my heart the root of my faith, the, the, the center object of my faith each day, the Lord Jesus. That, that, that's the question that each of these challenges addresses. There was an article this week that caused some controversy because it took positions on politicians and said things about presidential candidates that some people didn't like one way or another. But what was missed in that whole contention was the importance of what John Piper had to say about what we do as the people of God. And he said, the question is not who we pick or who we're voting for. The question is, are we as a people being shaped by the preaching of the word of God and by who we are as the people of God to where... Let's say a day comes when America devolves into fascism or anarchy, whether from the right or from the left. And in that day, are we such a people who are prepared to walk up to the gallows and as the noose is pressed around our neck, sing full-throatedly, let good and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That's the question that the disciples failed and the scribes failed, but that Jesus always gets right. He glories in the Father in all things. He says, I and my Father are one. The father would say of his son, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That is where we find our purposes is in God. I invite you to turn to hymn 11. And I want to close with this hymn, a reaffirmation of something that we did seven months ago. Do you know our last time that we had in person before we stopped for a couple of months because of COVID, we sang this song together as an affirmation that God is always in charge. And we sang it a cappella because I believe that this tune is one of the most important in Christian history. A sound affirmation of who God is and how his purposes are at odds with the purposes of the evil one and of the devils which follow after him. But we do not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph o'er us.
Would you stand with me as we conclude today? A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Now at this point, in this song, what does it say? On earth there is no equal to the power of the devil. And armed with cruel hate, he threatens to undo us. Right now we're surrounded by COVID and by political division and by powers and forces that might cause you fear. There is no list which can overcome the powers of spiritual darkness in your life. None. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing were not the right man on our side the man of God's own choosing dust ask who that may be Christ Jesus it is he Lord of darkness grim we tremble not for him his rage we can endure for lo his doom is sure one little word shall fail him that word is not the word of your own choosing it is not the word that you think of to overcome the devils of this world. It's nothing in your power or in mind to create. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The
His kingdom is forever. Lord Jesus, as we leave today, would you be our simple intention, the love of our lives, would our faith find its rest in you alone, Lord of the Sabbath. You are our rest. From you flows all our purpose and direction. So when we are directionless like ships without a rudder or powerless like ships without sails, would you be our direction and our power? Let us daily turn to you, for we love you, Lord Jesus. Give us your love in ever-increasing abundance. In your holy name we pray. Amen. God bless you all.